Welcome to Because the Beatles, the podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles, 24-8. I'm Allison. And I'm Erica. And before we start, please be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts or stream us on Spotify. And if you're enjoying BC the Beatles, feel free to leave us a preferably five-star review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting videos, photos, and more from this episode and beyond. Way beyond. Way beyond. So we're now into November, which is crazy. It's so cold. And, so cold. Well, maybe for you. I'm in, I'm in LA. Oh, so, shut yeah. up. <laughs> well, I'm going to be in New York shortly, and we'll talk about that in a second. Yay. But before we get to that, we do have some cool Beatles history for the beginning of November. So on the 1st of November, 1968, George Harrison became the very first member of the Beatles to release a solo album. It was a mostly instrumental album. It was called Wonderwall Music, and it was the soundtrack to the psychedelic film called Wonderwall that was released in the same year. Now, this was the first release to be on the band's newly formed Apple Records label, and it was a bit different for George because he was doing all kinds of styles. So there was his Indian music, but he was also doing psychedelic, he was doing country, he was doing some experimental styles. He worked on it with Eric Clapton, and Ringo was on it. It was really a cool foray for him. Now, there's some argument about whether this really was the first solo album by a Beatle because Paul McCartney did the soundtrack to the movie The Family Way, January 1967. But that was considered more of an instrumental soundtrack rather than a solo album because George did more production and songwriting and singing on this. So technically first album. Unfortunately, it didn't do that great. It charted a bit in America and Canada and Germany, but it didn't have any impact in England. Like any experimental venture, it got mixed reviews. Some people said it was a total misstep, but then others thought it was bold and exciting and adventurous. There are two claims to fame for this album. The first is that it's considered to be an early precursor to the more global interest in world music. And the second was that it was kind of a favorite cult record of a lot of the Britpop bands that came out in the 90s. And it helped influence the title of Wonderwall, which is the absolute biggest single in the Oasis catalog. Wonderwall music was eventually deleted from the Apple catalog, so Savage. it shows you how much they cared about this. But thanks to remastering, it's easily available on Spotify or wherever you play music. So check it out. It's cool. Wow. George could not get a break at no. that point. It's like, how much more can we torture George and to a certain extent Ringo? Like, come on. Like, they on. hate him. They cut it. They're like, no, like, horrible. I know first we talked about, you know, last week they didn't mix Not Guilty in stereo. They were like, nope, that's not going to make it. George is away in L.A. We're making the White Album, mastering the White Album. And now it's like, you know what, Wonderwall? We're going to just like snip snip that out of the Apple catalog. Bye-bye. Dicks. I'm sure they decided they didn't want George to be the first Beatle to have an official solo album. So they're like, this just didn't exist. We're going to start a conspiracy theory about this whole thing. Uh, but before we get there, we're going to talk about one more conspiracy theory Yay. on this episode. But it's actually got an anniversary. Uh, November 7th, 1969, Life magazine featured a cover with Paul and Linda and baby, baby Mary and Linda's daughter Heather on the cover um, at their family farm in Scotland. Headline is, Paul is still with us, attempting to dispel the rumor that Paul is dead, which is the topic of our uh, show today. So I'm going to get to that more in a minute. And the really unique story behind that whole life issue, and I use that 
term in like two different ways because there was an issue with the issue. <laughs> uh, life, 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 yeah. <laughs> life. Uh, but November 8th, 1961, this is a very important date, one near and dear to my heart. Brian requests a ticket to the Cavern Club to see the Beatles for the first time. And on November 9th, Brian and Alistair Taylor go there. So we won't go into that whole story here, but we do go into it on our fifth episode, uh, which is our episode. So we talk a lot about Brian and we talk about how he got led to the cavern and kind of some of the rumors and what's true, what's not. So definitely take a listen to that if you are curious. On November 11th, 1963, Brian negotiated a deal for the Beatles and Jerry and the Pacemakers to appear on the Ed Sullivan Show in America. So November is a really huge month for the Beatles, actually. There's yeah, so many sure. crazy things happening. And the whole winter, really, if you think about January and the DECA audition, a lot of things happen in the winter for the Beatles. Yeah, for sure. And not to go back to Paul is dead over and over, because we'll get to that <laughs> in just a sec. But November 9th, 1966, is considered to be RIP the day Paul McCartney died. And the conspiracy crowd, which still exists to this day, holds that date near and dear to their hearts. And the rest of us just sort of think it's November 9th and let it go on. Our last bit of history we're going to recognize is that on November 12th of 1977, Paul's single, Mull of Kintyre, was released. And this was huge. It was the 1977 Christmas number one. And in the UK, even to this day, Christmas singles are a huge deal. And mm -hmm. it was also the first single ever to sell over 2 million copies nationwide. And actually, it's funny, we talked about a little bit about something last week, which was that Paul was recognized by the Guinness Book of World Records. And we got a message from one of our listeners who told us that this single was primarily why he was recognized by the Guinness Book of World Records as musician of the century or artist of the century. And that makes a lot of sense because we think about John and Paul in almost direct competition for this, which they probably were. And then this was just so big and it just popped him right over the top. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, Mulv Kintyre was really that kind of turning point, which if you consider 77, not too shabby for Paul because he was kind of, I, I consider that to be kind of one of his like sort of down periods, but this is definitely a spike. To me, it always seemed like really random. Like it was just this single. They were just kind of walking around his estate in Scotland. Linda was pregnant. They were like walking and singing with guitars. It's like a folk song, like, but it really captured you know, people's interest, especially in the UK and Canada, where all of you lucky devils, you get to hear him sing it in concert with a local bagpipe band. I would die to see him do it because I actually adore that song. I think it's amazing. Yeah, I don't think I have either. But now that he's touring with horns, who knows, maybe bagpipes next. On to some Beatles news. First up, for all you collectors out there who are looking to spend a nice chunk of change on some new memorabilia, the Beatles are creating a pinball machine. Um, there's a limited run of, get this, uh, 1,964, think about that number, machines that are going to be produced in recognition of the year the Beatles first hit the U.S. So um, it'll have a Beatles, obviously, on the Ed Sullivan Show theme feature eight songs, including Hard Day's Night, Drive My Car, and I Should Have Known Better, as well as iconic introductions by Ed Sullivan, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles, I'm sure. And uh, 
what's called quote unquote custom speech and call outs by DJ cousin Brucey, who is awesome. You can hear him on sixties on six still to this day. Um, and he introduced the Beatles when they played New York Shea stadium in 64. Did I ever tell you that one of my favorite things that I have, uh, is when I worked at a magazine years ago, he mailed us, I think a photograph, but he mailed it to me cause I was like working as an assistant to the publisher and he put a post-it on it that said, to cousin Allison, huh? hope this helps, cousin Brucey, and I still have that posted. Oh, that's so awesome! I know it's so cute. He was so sweet. I love his show on Sixties on Six. I know he's so fun. I love him. Anyway, but this pinball machine, so it's predicted to be the most expensive pinball machine ever. <laughs> um, and like, I don't know if we have a price yet, but for your information, the most expensive one so far was sold for $16,000, um, which is insane. And if you've got that, um, I can think of about 3 million things you could do with that money rather than buy a Beatles pinball machine. But, you know. Apparently the company who's creating it, uh, it's a collaboration between Kapow and Stern, which must be big names in the pinball game. Um, usually they retail for about 9000 So this is going to be almost double what they usually charge, probably because of the Beatles licensing. I mean, if there's actually Beatles songs in those things. Right. I'm not a huge pinball fan, probably because I'm just not very good. And, you know, usually when you go, you're drunk. So how do you even get better? Um, <laughs> but I imagine this is really fun. I remember when I was in high school and I was a huge theater nerd and we found a the Who's Tommy themed pinball machine and not like nice. not the concept album, the fucking Broadway show. What? Yeah, it was, you can you can find pictures of this thing. It's yellow, like the logo was for the Who's Tommy, which I think came out in like 1992. And they made this themed pinball machine. And for some reason, like we found it in Rhode Island or like Seekonk, Massachusetts or some kind of random place where we were. And I mean, it was like our wet dream come true. We could not believe it was in front of us that this thing existed. Did you steal it or what? Come on. I couldn't carry it. I, I wish I yeah. could have. But I saw a picture of it when I was reading one of the articles about this. I think it was on Ultimate Classic Rock. They followed it with a slideshow of famous rock themed pinball machines over the ages. And they had a picture and it's like, oh my God, this nostalgia is so, so good. That's amazing. I mean, I know they have different... Um, like in Vegas, they have a Beach Boys pinball machine, like that kind of stuff. But this sounds like ultra rare. If it's a Broadway show, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, it was it was insane. Like, I cannot believe we found that still to this day. So this will be cool. It, it's something that anybody can really afford. But, you know, if you're a collector, this would be fun to play on. Yeah, it'd be pretty fun. Uh, in our next bit of news, Japanese Beatles fans have lost fights in the Supreme Court to release historic Beatles concert footage of their 1966 Japan visit. It was taken by the police for security measures at the time, but fans have been trying to get it released, arguing that it's a major historical document that nobody has ever seen. Now, the police argued back and said, we have privacy concerns about this, so we'll release it, but we'll blur out the faces of every single person except the Beatles, which seems absurd. That's really absurd, because, I mean, obviously, like, they didn't have all the American fans sign right to use their images in the 60s, and you see their 
spaces repurposed everywhere for everything. Right. And who's really going to recognize people in a crowd from 55 years ago? And if they do, it's probably a cool like nostalgia thing. Because I know a lot of the Beatles fans here have like recognized themselves or in England and have sort of recreated photos and that kind of thing, which is cool. Like I'm sure Japanese fans who are, by the way, massive fucking Beatles fans, like they love the Beatles in Japan, would be thrilled, I would think. Yeah, if I was on the Supreme Court, I would have let it go and they can file a separate lawsuit for privacy issues if they find their face in that crowd. But I bet they wouldn't. I bet they wouldn't. Is it concert footage? It is concert footage. Is it from the Budokan? Is that what it is? I think so. It's It just said it was the Japan visit. Now, there is even question of whether it exists at all. Like, it might Ooh. not even be in existence because the, from what I've read, they think it is because the police did offer to release something with the faces blurred out, but it's never been seen. Hmm. So it could be the concert. It could be them getting off the plane. Like, it, it's not entirely sure, but... Now that the Supreme Court, they totally put the kibosh on it, it's probably going to be a while before somebody picks up this fight again. So this is still... Oh, man. Yeah, this is still a piece of Beatles history that is yet to be discovered. Put that shit on YouTube, guys. Come on. God, leak it. Leak it. Come on. Leak it. For the good of us all. Bootleg it. (laughs) Circulate it. In related news, Paul (laughs) just arrived in Tokyo this week for his leg of the hashtag Freshen Up Tour. So fun. I have loved watching the videos. Like there was one of him and Nancy, you know, arriving and greeting fans in the airport. And his social media has been posting a lot of Insta stories of him taking the stage every night and just like what's going on there, which is really fun. Yeah, they're really into it. And he always gets, uh, he always wears some traditional type of garb when he comes in off of the plane. And they're so happy to see him. I still remember from about four years ago, I think, maybe five, when he went there and he got really sick. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, I totally. I was like, oh my gosh, I wonder if he's thinking about that or his pot bust, like what he thinks about when he goes back to Tokyo. But yeah, I remember him being sick in Japan. That was scary. It was really scary. He had like some kind of massive stomach flu or something. And obviously Mm -hmm. he recovered. Or maybe he died in 1966. And that's just Billy Mm -hmm. Campbell. (laughs) Depends. I mean, is there a third Paul? Is that what you're saying? No, I'm just saying, you know. (laughs) That Billy Campbell died Billy Shears Campbell (laughs) (laughs) Might have died in Japan, but he's okay and he's back still playing Paul with his wife who doesn't know. So yeah, there's that. He fools everybody all the time. (laughs) He's really good. I mean, it's been a while. Super good. 52 years of practice. Uh, Yep, exactly. You get good at it after after a half century, I would say. Yikes. Uh, Although he got good at it way faster and we'll talk about that in a sec. Um. So if you're in Vancouver, guys, check out Shakespeare Festival Bard on the Beach. Um, they license 25 Beatles songs for use in a new production of As You Like It, which is one of my favorite Shakespearean plays. It took 18 months to secure the rights, which eh, was Beatles songs, I believe it. The fact that they got it, though, pretty cool. Yeah, that is really cool. There was a play at Yale, the Yale rep, um, a few years ago called These Paper Bullets. Did you go see that? No, I didn't. What was it? It was a reinterpretation of a Shakespeare play. It might have been As You Like It, actually. But they reimagined it as the Beatles story. No, I think it was Midsummer because I feel like one of them played Puck. Anyway, 
but it was done as the Beatles, but the songs were all written by Billy Joe Armstrong of Green Day. Oh, who, how cool. Yeah, one of my favorite bands, other than the Beatles, obviously. But um, yeah, I didn't get to see it. I know some people who saw it and said it was amazing, but it kind of reminded me of that. I love this kind of stuff because I'm a huge theater nerd. But beyond that, it's such a fun thing to see these two art forms melded. It's another creative way that fans who are artists are expanding the fandom and sharing it with other people. And, you know, it, it works the same way for Shakespeare, too. Beatles fans will see this. Shakespeare fans will see the Beatles in a different context. It's just awesome. I, Vancouver is so far away from me, but I really hope I can get to see this. Yes. I've never been to Canada. Let me just say that. I've been everywhere else, but never Canada. So yeah, maybe I have to go. make a trip to Vancouver. We'll do a Canadian tour. I lived in Montreal for four years, but actually never been to Vancouver. So I'd love yes. to go to the West. Yes. Speaking of the coast, let's talk about the other coast, the East Coast, where this weekend, the White Album International Symposium is happening November 8th to 11th at Monmouth University in Monmouth, New Jersey, sponsored by the Bruce Springsteen Archives and the Center for American Music at Monmouth University, conceived and hosted by last week's guest, Monmouth University's social sciences dean and Beatles author, Ken Womack. Yay. And uh, if you like the Beatles, which I'm guessing you do, you're listening to this podcast, You'll probably want to attend if you're nearby because there's going to be over 75 sessions and events with basically every major Beatles author alive today. Although, shout out to Sarah Schmidt, Candy Leonard, and all of our friends who can't make it. We They very, very correctly pointed out on Facebook that we were incorrect last week when we said that every major Beatles author will be there because they will not be, but they will be there in spirit. We will miss them very much. Yes, we will. However, Mark Lewison will be there. Hashtag Lewis and his God. So that's very exciting for all of us. And there's going to be a midnight listening party the night the album is officially released, too, which is also awesome. And obviously Mark Lewison is going to be there, which is going to be amazing. Yes. And not only will Mark Lewison be presenting, but so will we. So. Oh, my God, we will. We will. Shit. We will. You better get your shit together because we Uh-oh. will. I got to book some flights. You better be there. So <laughs> because the Beatles will be doing a live recorded podcast Saturday at 9 a.m. I am so <laughs> great. <laughs> it's gonna be great. We're gonna uh, we're gonna not gonna be hungover. No, not a bit. <laughs> it's gonna be good. It's gonna be good. <laughs> um, and you know, Erica and I will be in the same place for the first time ever since starting this podcast. So I really know. Exciting. I'm really excited yeah. about that. Our topic is also really fun. So the yeah. women of BC The Beatles are going to be talking about the women who influenced John Lennon's work on the White Album. That includes, obviously, Yoko Ono, and we're going to talk a little about Cynthia Lennon and their time in Rishikesh, and also Julia Lennon, because there's a beautiful ballad on the White Album in her honor. So I'm really excited to tackle this. So if you're there, I hope you can make it in person. But if you're not, we're going to be releasing that as part of our next episode. So you'll be able to hear it. Yeah. And if you want to be part of the podcast, and if you have any questions or any ideas or any comments about this topic, send us your ideas, your questions to BC the Beatles, BC the Beatles at gmail.com. Um, you can also tweet us, DM us, like leave comments. It's, we'll find it. But yeah, we'd love to discuss it with you ahead of time and hopefully see you if you're there. We loved it when you guys submitted questions for the episode. It was so much fun because then we were yeah. able to start kind of a dialogue with you guys, think about things that maybe we didn't think about. So if you have any questions or if you have any comments about John Lennon and his influences, various women and his work on the White Album, please let us know. We want to hear from you so bad. 
definitely. And if you're still on the fence, you can still get tickets at monmouth.edu slash the white album with hyphens in between. So the hyphen white hyphen album. And uh, hopefully we'll see you there. And it's not just academic stuff, too. There's concerts. I think there's a drum demonstration. There's going to be all kinds of musical-related things. So, you know, if you've ever been to an academic conference, it's much more than just presentations. Yeah, it's going to be really, really fun. And there's lots of opportunities to hang out with the authors. And if you buy, I believe, the full weekend package, then you have meals included, which also come with, like, talks from people like Ken Mansfield and just more time to mingle with everybody, which was one of the goals that Ken Womack told us was to have that time to like meet and greet and to network, which is going to be really fun. I'm so excited. It's going to be great. I can't wait. And speaking of the White Album Symposium, one of the other guests is Rob Sheffield, who is a writer for Rolling Stone, is a music journalist, has written books on Bowie, and is the author of our next book club book, Dreaming the Beatles, the love story of one band and the whole world. It's a collection of essays telling the story of what the Beatles means to us. So it's not as much about the band and facts about the band as it is a celebration and deep dive into the fandom and what it means to us now and then and in the future. I'm reading it now. I love it. We would love it if you would read along with us. Send us your comments about that, too. And we're going to be doing our book club episode on that sometime in mid-November. So stay tuned. So exciting. I actually have to remember to pack my copy because I would love Rob Sheffield to sign it. Oh, that'd be so nice. That'd be so nice. I know. He's one of my faves, so it's going to be cool to meet him. And I hope he'll maybe give us a few words about the book that we can share with you in the book club episode, too. Fingers crossed. We'll see what happens. There could be some cool surprises coming out of the symposium, but we can't really say too much yet. But fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Our feature segment today is something that I find hilarious and fun and so super weird is the (laughs) the Paul is dead hoax. So 49 years ago on November 7th of 1969 was the famous Time magazine cover that we referenced earlier featuring a very annoyed looking Paul, Linda, Heather, and even annoyed baby Mary on their farm in Scotland. (laughs) That baby Mary is like, get the hell off my land. (laughs) She was pissed. She's pissed. (laughs) She's unhappy. Really unhappy. And Heather's got like a shepherd's stick. She's going to kick your ass. Yeah. So the cover story was the case of the missing beetle. Paul is still with us. Rebutting this then popular theory that exploded in October and November of 1969 that Paul McCartney was dead. Uh, It became an obsession, especially with conspiracy theories around the murders of JFK and RFK happening at that time. People were conspiracy minded, so people hooked into this. It was a big deal. So to mark this auspicious date and celebrate a belated Halloween, we're going to take a look at the weird history of this super, super creepy hoax. A hoax that weirdly still persists. I mean, obviously, there are still like JFK conspiracy theorists and that kind of thing. But like, this is... We'll talk about it in a minute, but it inspires some really crazy shit. Crazy. So in November of 1966, the legend has it, Paul McCartney had an argument with the other Beatles during a recording session. He drove off angrily in his Aston Martin car, but he didn't notice that the light had changed. Mm. He crashed and he got decapitated. Uh Uh-oh. As you do, as you do. The surviving Beatles, well, they had to do something. So they had the winner of a recent Paul McCartney lookalike contest step in to replace him. 
great. Uh, Logical. But, yeah. Well, there are a few theories on why the Beatles would do this. The first was to spare the public from grief. The second was to have a laugh. I mean, they were like 20-something-year-old boys. And also, I guess, sadistic sociopathic assholes. Yep, that would work. That fits. <laughs> yeah, this is really funny. Let's <laughs> pretend he's still alive. LOL. But in true conspiracy form, the other theory is that the secret placement was mandated by Britain's MI5, an agent named Maxwell mandated it, because they were concerned at the distress that Paul's death would cause his fans. So it became a matter of national importance. Well, as anything with Beatles is wont to do. Yes. I can see the logic in that, honestly. I would freak out. Yeah, I mean, they're a major economic boon for uh, England, so yeah. totally. So the contest winner was named either William Campbell or William Shears Campbell, sometimes abbreviated to Billy Shears. He was an orphan. Oh, he was from Edinburgh. And he got plastic surgery to complete his look. And the other Beatles trained him to perfectly impersonate Paul. Which is hilarious because you know like the other Beatles would do these exaggerated like oh look at me I'm Paul McCartney I write these whimsical ditties like John would be such a troll with that like Billy Shears would walk around being this exaggerated version of Paul you know maybe that's how the Sir Thumbs Aloft Silly Love Songs kind of guy got started because he's not really Paul McCartney <laughs> and John Lennon made it happen this is a good theory let's make this canon <laughs> <laughs> I think we could there's more ridiculous things in here than that yep <laughs> So the scenario was facilitated by the fact that the Beatles had recently retired from live performance and they were choosing to present themselves with a new image with the next album, Sgt. Pepper, which framed them as a different band. And Paul started walking around sporting a pretty big mustache. Yeah, not to mention that around the time that this supposed car accident happened, he also got a really crazy haircut from our friend Leslie Cavendish, which we talk about in episode three because Paul wanted to go on holiday with Jane Asher and he didn't want to be recognized. So Leslie gave him a really short sort of crew cut looking thing that had the paper saying that Paul was a skinhead. Wow. <laughs> so, so plus a mustache and, you know, Paul was growing his hair back out. I'm sure it was a totally jarring experience to see this new Paul. Little did Leslie know that it wasn't even Paul. And somehow his Paul McCartney imitation was so good that no one was even able to verify for sure that this wasn't him. Not even his family, his dad, Jim, or his brother, Mike, or even Jane Asher, who just went on vacation with him. They couldn't tell. Nope, because this guy deserves all the awards. Or though, were they in on the secret all along? <gasps> they just played along. Who knows? Cue Twilight Zone music. It is said that the three surviving Beatles felt so guilty over their secret, I guess it wasn't that funny after all, that they left messages in their music and album artwork to communicate the real truth to their fans. Mm. I love how snarky we are about this, and there are literally people who live and die by this rumor. Thankfully, there are fewer of them now, but there are some. Yeah, there really are. <laughs> So how did we get here? This is the sordid history of the Paul is Dead rumor, which is actually kind of amazing because it explodes in like the period of a month. It actually starts two years before the big explosion in the February 1967 issue of the Beatles Monthly Book, which is the Beatles official fan club magazine. There was a blurb in the Beatle news section. I don't know what other kind of news is in the Beatles official fan club mm. magazine, but... <laughs> World news, current affairs. Right, yeah. It was entitled... 
false rumor. And I quote, stories about the Beatles are always flying around Fleet Street. The 7th of January was very icy with dangerous conditions on the M1 motorway linking London with the Midlands. And towards the end of the day, a rumor swept London that Paul McCartney had been killed in a car crash in the M1. But of course, there was absolutely no truth in it at all. As the Beatles press officer found out when he telephoned Paul's St. John's Wood home and was answered by Paul himself that he had been at home all day with his black Mini Cooper safely locked up in the garage. So, little blurb, two years before. But over the next two years, people started thinking about this. People, as we said, were a little bit more conspiracy theory-minded, and it was especially popular among college students who would come back for the new year, and they would start talking about it and comparing stories, and they got really into it. The beginning of the 1969-1970 school year was when this really all came to a head. And on September 17th of 1969, Drake University student Tim Harper published an article in the Drake student paper called Is Beetle Paul McCartney Dead? And the article discussed some of the most famous clues like how you can hear Turn Me On Dead Man when Revolution 9 is played backwards and things like that. Derek Taylor, the Beatles press secretary, he tried to quash these rumors in a statement on October 10th. So three or so weeks later, but that probably added fuel to the fire because on October 12th of 1969, Russ Gibb, who was a Detroit disc jockey, he received a phone call from a listener who told him about these clues that the students were starting to discover. And what's interesting is if you have the book, The Walrus's Paul, which is literally every Paul is dead clue, every theory, and the book, spoiler alert, never really gives a definitive answer whether Paul is dead or not. It has a Q&A in the, uh, the intro, I believe, the acknowledgments in the beginning of the book with this listener who's named Tom, who called WKNR and talked to Russ Gibb at length, but it has all the details in there about it. But it's interesting because this guy just emailed the author of this book, R. Gary Patterson, signed it Tom, no last name, very mysterious. Lots of mystery surrounding this. Oh, that's this crazy. Even more mystery. Yeah. Well, Russ Gibb was the right person to talk to because he was so into it. He just ditched his entire program and spent three hours playing Beatles music backwards on the radio trying to figure out some of these things. And once a DJ started broadcasting this to the masses, the rumors spread like wildfire. Next thing, a University of Michigan student wrote an article pretty famous in the story, pinpointing even more clues, especially on the new Abbey Road album cover. And by October 21st, the New York City radio station started picking up on the story. And one of them was actually broadcast in 38 different states. So that gave it nationwide attention. Mm. On top of that, Paul himself was being seen less and less in the media. He was giving fewer interviews. He wasn't being seen out on the town like he used to when he was dating Jane Asher and they would go to culture events. He wasn't even living in London anymore. That really solidified this rumor, its place in pop culture history. There was a salacious magazine published about it. I think it's called like Paul McCartney Death Hoax. It's, it's really fun. And oh, yeah. we I, Yeah, there's a picture. It's a it, yeah, it's a crazy, crazy magazine. I love it. I see it every once in a while in the marketplace at Beatles Fest. One of these days I'm going to get it. I love it. Yeah, totally. And there are a few musicians who decided to cash in on the hoax with some novelty songs, like <laughs> the group Mystery Tour, famous group Mystery Tour, with the Ballad of yeah, Paul. Yeah, I love Mystery Tour. 
I saw them on their 98 reunion tour. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, with Herman's Hermits, right? I remember that. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. The, <laughs> the other one is called Brother Paul by the very famous Billy Shears and the All-Americans, and it's real. Oh, my God, we're going to post it. It's so creepy. It's so fucking creepy. It's really, like, haunting. So that's the story. And the story comes with probably a couple of hundred clues. I mean, there's really limitless amounts of clues. Like every time I sort of go down the Paula's dead rabbit holes, I come up with more shit. Like, I don't know how this stuff emerges. It's never ending. It's never ending. People have way too much time. I'm sorry. I mean, um, people are great researchers and they discover this stuff. There you go. To prove that Paula's dead. There you go. So there's the (laughs) book that Allison referenced before, The Wall Whispers Paul. And there's also a pretty full and scarily exhausting list at this very old looking URL that we will post if you want to read more about these. But here are some of the highlights of <laughs> of these clues, which I can barely stand read without laughing. Okay, so the first earliest one was that the cover of 1966's Yesterday and Today album was the infamous Butcher cover, where the Beatles were smiling, posing in butcher jackets with raw, bloody meat and dismembered doll parts. Actually, one of my favorite Beatles photos of all times. But of course, that was symbolizing Paul's deadly, bloody car accident, obviously. But wouldn't that have been taken before the car accident? So would it be predicting it? Details, details. Okay. <laughs> I, I think you're right, but I don't know what else to say. No, it is details. I mean, who cares? It doesn't, you know, it's just semantics. Dates. Yeah. In Taxman, George gave advice for those who die, obviously meaning Paul. Duh. Sergeant Pepper is full of Paula's dead clues, and these are just a few of them. So the Beatles formed a new band with a fictional member named Billy Shears, supposedly the name of Paul's replacement, or at least one one of the names. It's also William Campbell or William Shears Campbell, even though Ringo is actually introduced as Billy Shears. So they're just trying to confuse us a little bit, make sure that we don't... More semantics, more yeah. details. Eh, move on. Well, I need to know. <laughs> um, in the day in the life had the lyrics, he blew his mind out in a car and... Paul is dead, miss him, miss him, miss him can be heard by some when it's played backwards. Disregarding the real fact that the person who blew his mind out of the car was Tara Brown, um, who the Beatles have referenced many times, who is the heir to the Guinness fortune and a young socialite. And everything from that line, blew his mind out of the car, to I read the news today, oh boy, was based off of a headline about the car accident. So all of that was referencing Tara Brown, but, you know, that might be too factual, so let's move on. Facts? Fuck facts. Facts don't have any place here. No. So the next one is that John is said to have confessed I buried Paul at the end of Strawberry Fields Forever. This is an endless debate. John himself said that he said cranberry sauce. Who knows? It's ridiculous, whatever he said. And it's almost unintelligible. What do you think he said, Erica? I think he said I buried Paul because I firmly believe that Paul died in 1966. Oh, okay. Well, that's cool. What do you believe? I believe cranberry sauce. I think. I don't know. I no. mean, I go back and forth, but I don't think it's I buried Paul. It's tough. I don't know. I do like cranberry sauce. Getting close to Thanksgiving. I know. Mm. Getting hungry. Okay. Uh, anyway, now for the super, super crazy. On the album cover, <laughs> the crowd includes faces and, of course, bodies of many famous people who were already dead by this time. Even the wax figures of the early Beatles stand in for the real Beatles at one place on the album, and they're actually pretty creepy. So, you know, they are overlooking kind of a makeshift gravesite where the flowers spell out the word Beatles and 
near that area, there is a bass guitar there with three sticks on it, of course, indicating that there are three remaining Beatles and the bass player is dead. (laughs) There is an open palm above Paul's head, which is a sign of death rituals in some cultures. And another really, really ridiculous clue, there is a doll, a kind of creepy doll sitting off to the side who some people believe symbolize Jane Asher with red lines of blood running down her dress. Okay. Um, A small car sits in her lap, a model of the car Paul was driving. So it's Jane. It's a symbol of Jane being just torn up over the car accident. Uh, So, yeah. Um, On the back cover, the Beatles are all facing forward except for Paul or fall as the PID. Paul is dead. Conspiracy folks like to say fall, faux Paul. Love fall. Yeah. Fall is turned around so you can't really see him. George is pointing a quote-unquote sixth finger at him, which is a sign of ill omen. Inside the album, Paul has a patch on his left arm that people think says OPD, which is said to mean officially pronounced dead. Sadly to say for this clue, it actually reads OPP, which stands for Ontario Provincial Police. It was given to Paul when the Beatles stopped in Toronto on a tour. So, (laughs) and on a last really creepy note, the paper sleeve that held the vinyl record in the original looked like it had been like standing in and soaking up blood like a gradient. So it's like bright red at the bottom and fades up to a pink at the top. And subsequent releases of this album didn't have that on the inner sleeve, probably because it was too traumatic. It was very triggering. Well, you know, the ones that actually soaked up Paul's real blood are real collector's items. You can find those on the black market for millions. So keep an eye out, guys. If any of you have the actual Paul Blood uh, Sgt. Pepper's editions, let us know. Um, One of my favorite clues on the cover, which I actually forgot about, but I was uh, reminded of it earlier today. Um, And I did this when I was a kid. And if you've never done this, do it. When you hold a mirror up to the drum head, on the Sgt. Pepper's uh, album cover, where it says Lonely Hearts in the middle, it's reflected to read I, as in like the Roman numeral one, I, then the word one, and then the Roman numeral for uh, nine. So it's I-X, he, die. So one, the one doesn't really matter. And then one, then the nine is November, and then he die, you know, Paul. Mm-hmm. Paul's dead, that's what it means. <laughs> That's but yeah, go go hold a mirror up to the drum head. It's very strange. That's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it is pretty weird that it says he died, but you know, I'm gonna do it. But I'm kind of freaked out now. Do it. It's like an Ouija board, sort of. When I saw that clue, I was like, "What?" But now I'm hearing you say it actually is something that happens, and I'm a little freaked out. Yeah, I remember doing it. Like I had Sgt. Pepper on CD when I was a kid, but yeah, I remember doing it and being like, "Holy shit!" That's nuts. Um. One, another one of my favorite clues, it came later on Magical Mystery Tour, and on that, I believe it's the cover, um, has the Beatles dressed up uh, in their Iron Walrus costumes from the film. The rumor is that Paul is in the Black Walrus costume, which is the one at the bottom, and he's got his arms sort of stretched out. And in certain cultures, some ar- Arctic cultures, the walrus is uh, an omen of death. However, in that same Life magazine issue with Paul in the cover. Ringo was asked if that was a clue, and he said no, it wasn't even Paul in the costume. Although in 1987, Paul told Rolling Stone that he was in the costume because the walrus head, quote unquote, didn't fit John. A likely so, story. John's head is not that big. Yeah. Likely story, Paul. Come on. Or shall I say fall? <laughs> Falls talking to Rolling Stone. Oh my God. 
<laughs> the next clue is in All You Need Is Love. Apparently, you can hear, yes, he's dead at the end. So all these clues, they're answering it. Yup, he's dead. Yup. Yep. <laughs> and one of the most famous ones is if Revolution Number no. 9 is playing backwards, it is said that John says, turn me on, dead man. Which is, if he's actually dead, it's disgusting. That is disgusting. Some people have said that Revolution Number no. 9 played either backwards or forwards is the sound of the car accident. Which, I mean, Revolution Number no. 9, to be fair, does sound like a car accident. I don't know if it's this one. But, uh, you know, it might be this one. That is a fair assessment. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, people have broken it down minute by minute, gone through with a fine tooth comb, frontwards and backwards, uh, and picked out all the Paulus dead clues. You can find them. Just Google it. Uh, it's pretty crazy. I, I do give people credit for doing this because they're very creative, but it's it's really intense. Yeah, we're really only scratching the surface here, guys. There's really, seriously. So much. There's so much, so much. And if you have favorite Paula's Dead clues that we didn't mention, please tell us in the comments. Oh my God, seriously. Like, like tweet at us. We'll retweet all the Paula's Dead clues. Like, we'll repost. Like, just, yeah, let's just do it. Yeah. Not to be forgotten, Abbey Road yeah. also contains a million clues pretty much the most famous that was the nail in the coffin yep so to speak oh oh bazinga <laughs> god <laughs> on the abbey road cover john george and ringo pretended to cross the street like a funeral procession john wore all white like the pastor ringo was the mourner dressed in black and george wore denim like a grave digger paul wore a nice suit and he wore no shoes a funeral ritual in some countries and or dead men don't need shoes because they don't walk and he walked out of step with the others makes sense um actually paul has said that the reason he didn't have shoes on was because it was hot out and he said that just this past summer in a QA and a uh, that he did at the Abbey Road Studios when he did the Spotify sessions there. And I was sort of like, what the hell? That's such a load of a crack of shit. Because number one, hot asphalt in the summer, you're going to take your shoes off. Ow. That's crazy. And two, I was I was like, that sounds way too like pandering to say that. Oh, I just kicked my shoes off. That's all. But actually, in the same Life magazine issue, he says the same thing. He's like, it was hot out, so I took my shoes off. So I don't know. It's corroborated there. Yeah, and there are pictures of them walking in the other way across the street where he is wearing his shoes. There was no you know, consensus on which way they were going to walk when they did this. So it was actually kind of random. The best picture happened to have him with no shoes on. But if they had had him walking toward the studio, he would have been wearing shoes. Uh, he also carried his cigarette in his right hand, obviously because his replacement, Billy Shears, was right-handed and he was still learning to live life as a lefty Paul, but he forgot in this moment. I love that he lived life as a lefty. That's really hard. Like, side note, my grandmother is from Sicily and she's a left-handed person and they made her learn to write with her right hand because, um, you know, in the Catholic Church at that time, they thought that being left-handed was like a sign of the devil. Yeah, my mom was left-handed and she told me that her teachers tried to make her right-handed and her mother went to the school and said, you will not make my daughter right-handed. And so she was left-handed all her life. Actually, both my parents, I'm a righty. What can I say? Well, then you're going to have to learn how to be a lefty if you become the new fall. I'm already training for it. Nice, nice, nice. I've been training my whole life. So... What was really going on? 
The rumor itself of how he died was kind of a mix of two different things. To start off, Paul really did get into a moped accident in 1966, where he broke his front tooth and he busted up his lip. You can find the pictures online. So the mustache he grew was to kind of hide this broken tooth and this fat lip and scar, but not to conceal his entire identity. You can see the tooth in the rain and paperback writer videos too. So it definitely happened and it definitely happened at that time. The second part of the rumor stemmed from the fact that Paul's very recognizable, totally customized Mini was actually involved in another crash in January 1967, but he wasn't the one driving it and nobody actually died. But this is actually a weird story on its own. It's worthy for this a side note. super weird story. Yeah. yeah. The driver that day was named Muhammad Chidaibi, and he was the assistant to uh, gallery curator Robert Frazier. So he was kind of in these artsy circles, and he hung out with Paul sometimes. Um, and he had dark hair and kind of a similar slim build. So he resembled Paul slightly, and he had actually taken out Paul's car from time to time uh, to make like errands and drug runs and things like that. Um, so this <laughs> it's true. Drug runs, <laughs> yeah. you know. Hooray. Uh, like groceries, <laughs> dry cleaning, and drugs. Drugs. <laughs> so this one day, he was hanging out at Paul's place with uh, Brian Wilson, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, and others. And Paul brings out this giant book, plunks it down on the table, opens it up, turns out to be hollowed out, and full of a super amount of drugs, all kinds of drugs, weed, hash, coke, acid, like you name it, he had it. Wait, you don't store your drugs in a hollowed out book? No, I store my drugs in the bathroom like everybody else. Oh, so maybe it's just me and Paul then. You are going to be for the next fall, so you better store your drugs the way he stores his. It was meant to be. I know. So they decide to take the party over to Keith Richards' house. And Paul tells this guy, Muhammad, to take his car and the book of drugs and meet him there while he goes with Jagger and Richards. So <laughs> this guy, this poor guy, he's super stoned. He's driving these dark country roads of the M1. And he's driving really fast because he's trying to keep up with Mick Jagger's car taillights to follow. And I don't know if you've ever been on these roads in England, but people drive super fast. And even though if it's two-lane road, they like opposite directions they pass you anyway and it's terrifying oh that's so scary it's so scary i mean for me like i went on a trip and we rented a car and it was so it was so scary the way they drive so i get it like this this was scary so what happened was he got into an accident another car tried to pass him and ran over like about a foot of the seatbelt that was hanging out of paul's car so oh muhammad tried to like turn right to get out and then he let go and then the car super jammed right into a pole because he was like, you know, really revving it up. The pole split the car in half, the engine in half, and Muhammad is unconscious for a few minutes. Jesus. It's freaky. So he wakes up before the police come and his first thought is not his own physical safety. It's not the car. It's the giant box of drugs because he knows <laughs> what's going to happen if the cops come and find a box full of drugs in Paul McCartney's super recognizable one-of-a-kind car. So... <laughs> This guy's a true friend. Paul should be so lucky. This hero drags himself out of the wreckage, (laughs) finds the box. God among men. He hobbles across the dark highway. He scales a high barrier fence and a traffic island in the process. And he throws the box as far down a ravine as he can. And he still makes it back to the accident site in time for the police to arrive. He went to the hospital. He amazingly only had minor injuries. But... 
it looked enough like Paul because like the apple scrubs were outside of his house when he drove the car out. So they knew that they thought that Paul had taken the car out. So the rumors were flying that it was Paul in the crash and it got built up to he died in the crash and to Paul is dead. Mm. Side note to the side note, when Paul McCartney found out about this, he was actually really pissed the drugs were gone rather than that this guy saved his ass. Yeah, that was my first question. It's like, did anybody go back and get the book of drugs? No. Like, come on. From what priorities. I know, yeah. Muhammad had priorities. He did. They were the wrong priorities, according to Paul, apparently, because he was mad. <laughs> <laughs> what a good... Okay, so let's just establish this. Uh, Muhammad, good friend to Paul. Paul, not a good friend to Muhammad. So. Yeah, actually, like, I, I wasn't going to bring this up because it really doesn't look good for Paul, but Muhammad went to Paul afterwards and was like, dude, can you just claim the insurance on this help me with the the medical bills because they're really expensive and paul was so pissed about the car and the drugs that he didn't do it (sighs) paul jesus christ i know i know i think he's grown a lot since then but it's really funny that people think he looks like paul too because i i'm currently looking at his face he looks like he reminds me of like chubby checker like his face looks like chubby checker he looks nothing like paul picture yeah we'll post a picture of him on our um instagram uh but it's yeah very funny. So that's the story. That's where it came from. The Beatles themselves are on record thinking that the rumor was a load of crap. Oh, really? That's strange. I would think that they would have loved that. <laughs> well, John said there were no clues planted. He actually said cranberry sauce. And in the anthology, he was quoted as saying, Paul McCartney couldn't die without the world knowing it. The same as he couldn't get married or go on holiday without the world knowing it. It's just insanity. But it's a great plug for Abbey Road. They weren't mad. <laughs> We're mad about it. No. But, you know, it is true that Paul was out of the spotlight. He was newly married. He was spending time with Linda on their farm in Scotland, the new baby Mary, his new stepdaughter Heather, recording his first solo album, McCartney, and really dealing with depression with the beginning of the end of the Beatles. So he was out of the public eye for a lot of other reasons. And that brings us back to the November 1969 Life magazine cover. He got a surprise visit in his farm in Scotland from a Life magazine reporter. He was fucking pissed. When he saw them, he cursed them out. He threw a bucket of water over them. And he tried to punch the photographer. Well, unfortunately. amazing. I know. I, I would have loved to see this. And unfortunately for Paul, they got a picture of this. They got this stuff on film. But Paul, ever the pragmatist, he feared that the photos would damage his image, so he agreed to pose for a nice photo with his family and answer the reporter's questions in exchange for the roll of film containing the bad pictures. Do you think Paul kept the film? Do you think Linda developed it just to see what was on it? God, I hope so. They were like, LOL, and he has one framed. I would like to think that. I feel like Linda had the kind of sense of humor that she would have, even if he wanted to burn it, I feel like she would have done it. I'm hoping she kept one somewhere in some like pile of old pictures. And one day, like Mary goes through the stuff and she finds it and it comes to light. Fingers crossed. You can never be sure it's gone. So you look at the Life magazine photo, you can tell he wasn't happy, but he did comply. And in the issue, he said, perhaps the rumor started because I haven't been in much in the press lately. I have done enough press for a lifetime and I don't have anything to say these days. I'm happy to be with my family and I will work when I work. I was switched on for 10 years and I never switched off. Now I'm switching off whenever I can. I would rather be a little less famous these days. So that's that's Paul's answer or fall. That's somebody's answer. But, you know. <laughs> 
Was it true, though, that the Beatles had no involvement? Because it does kind of seem like something John would think up and think was funny, or at least would hear about and think was funny and perpetuated in later albums. It happened at a time when the Beatles stopped touring and the press was very openly wondering if they were washed up and done for. My conspiracy tinfoil hat is tingling and telling me that even if they did it, of course they would deny it because they did it and they're trying to hide it. So we'll probably never know. And it's funny because the rumor started to really gain traction at the end of the 60s. So it's really the first time that a Beatle rumor popped up where the fans could go back through this entire catalog, you know, and look and be and pinpoint these little things that made this giant tapestry of this rumor. Before then, it was just sort of piecemeal, like per album. Mm-hmm. But this was like looking at the big picture and saying like, oh, yeah, that makes sense because that's connected to that and that's connected to this. So it kind of was really the perfect storm for this rumor to take hold. It took hold. But after that article, the rumor kind of started declining in enthusiasm but it really never totally went away people still talk Mm -hmm. about it to this day it became a popular subject for academic study in the 70s with other conspiracy theories like who killed jfk and who killed rfk which i think is really interesting that they grouped all these together one thing that i read that i found interesting with that a couple of psychologists attributed the popularity to the shared vicarious experiences of searching for the clues without consequence for the participants so to me that really feels like what our internet fandom is today and what we get out of it in kind of an analog way. Very cool to me. And, you know, as more evidence, the very first article that we ever published on Rebeat Magazine, R-E-B-E-A-T mag.com, if you haven't been there yet, it's our parent uh, magazine, um, was on Paula's Dead. And it's still our way by far our most visited article, our most commented on if you ever are bored Take a trip to that comment section. It's amazing. I still approve comments in that section because it's just, it cracks me up. But you'll see all the Paula's dead conspiracists coming out of the woodwork and talking shit on the article. And, you know, it's really funny. Just, yeah, just go there. We'll link it in our um, Facebook and Twitter and all that. So you can take a look. I love it. I love it. If you want more playing on the joke, Paul actually released a 1993 concert album called Paul is Live. And the cover of that was a digitally altered version of the original Abbey Road cover with Paul by himself being dragged across the crosswalk by one of his giant sheepdogs. And he made some little changes to the album. So the license plate on the original one said LMW28IF, which to the conspiracy theories, this was a license plate on a Volkswagen Beetle that was in the background. LMW28IF meant Linda McCartney Weeps. That's LMW, Linda McCartney Weeps. And 28IF was that in that year, McCartney would have been 28 years old if he had lived. So in Paul is Live, it is edited to read 51 IS, meaning that he is still alive and his age at the time of this album is 51. Awesome. (laughs) That's exactly what Fall would want you to think. Oh, you're right. You're really thinking like a conspiracy theorist now. Jesus. I know. (laughs) I'm starting to believe it. Other clues on the album. McCartney is wearing shoes. On Abbey Road, he appeared bare feet. His left foot is forward. In the original cover, it was right foot. As we said, he was still getting used to being a lefty. So maybe he either is proving that he's the real Paul McCartney or he's just practiced. And now he's good with the lefty stuff. Mm -hmm. He holds the dog's leash in his left hand, being left-handed. 
And many thought that was another clue because Dead Paul from Abbey Road held the cigarette in his right hand. So same thing with the right hand, left hand. But that's a really fun album cover and the digital work is pretty good. Perfect. Yeah. And there's still some things going on even today in the past 10, 15 years or so. As recently as 2009, there was this Italian tabloid that tried to compare minute facial details like cornea size and chin shape of Paul McCartney before and after to prove that today's Paul is really Billy Shears. The so-called expert, that was his conclusion that Paul is dead. And in 2010, there was a very odd film called Paul McCartney Really Is Dead, The Last Testament of George Harrison. This freaks me out. Okay, what it was is, it's on Netflix, you can watch it, is that the director, Joel Gilbert, he claims he got a package with no return address. Inside were two mini cassette audio tapes dated December 30th, 1999, labeled The Last Testament of George Harrison. As he says, a voice identical to Harrison tells a shocking story. The Last Testament of George Harrison may prove to be the most important document of rock and roll history, leaving little doubt that Paul McCartney really is dead. Hmm. Bullshit. (laughs) Sorry, but the voice on the recording sounds so little like George. It's like a mediocre tribute band, George. It's not George. It doesn't sound anything like George. Oh my gosh, I haven't seen it, but I'm definitely going to go straight to Netflix and check this out right after we're done recording. It's crazy. You got to see it. It was originally published as Truth. It was called Documentary. Now the publicity refers to it as a mockumentary, acknowledges that it's fake because, you know. Oh my God, no fucking way. Duh. But, you know, the point is that people are still kind of interested in this. And also, if you kind of want to be creeped out and sort of see a visual representation of all these clues in one place, it's kind of neat. But... Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, I guess it's worth it for that, for the creep factor, if you want to keep Halloween rolling a little longer. Yeah. Yeah, just this year. And these guys followed us on Instagram, which is how I discovered this film. But a group of actors in England made a short film called Paul is Dead. And they make the disclaimer on the film that it's not a true story. But the premise is that the Beatles are in the Lake District in 1967. They have a big party. The next morning they wake up. They're all hungover. They're fighting. And they discover that Paul is dead and they find a local sheep herder called Billy Shears to join the band. And they're trying to train him, as we've talked about, in Paul's habits. And then they take the body of Paul up to this mountain summit to try to bury it. And it's uh, it's really interesting. It's, it's a very short film. Take a look at it. And it's uh, brand new. So it shows how the Paul is dead conspiracy theory is still perpetuating today. I haven't seen that. I've got to check that out. Is it possible that the guy that was the sheep herder that became the new Paul was actually the same guy who they used as um, Percy Thrillington? Oh, my gosh. Well, I, you know, I can't make a comment on that. So I guess you'll just have to watch the film. Yeah. And if you want to know more about Percy Thrillington, go listen to our first episode called Paul is Weird, where we talk yeah. about that. It's actually still our, yeah. our most popular episode. <laughs> And speaking of Paul, even today, as of this year, Paul is still asked about this Paul is dead thing. He maintains that he is not dead and they did not start it, nor did they stress about it. During the extended cut of the carpool karaoke with James Corden like two months ago, he asked Paul about it and he just said, we just kind of let it go. So that's Paul's answer. But I really do think they liked it. I'm sure they had a laugh. Well, that's true, too. I don't know. (laughs) The walrus was Paul, after all. Yep. John couldn't fit the costume, so. I never thought his head was that big. Gotta look at his head again. (laughs) So 
all of this is really fun, but do people actually believe it? Luckily, no. According to a 2013 survey by PPP, which is a legitimate polling organization, only 5% of respondents believed that Paul McCartney died in 1966, a figure that barely surpasses the 4% of respondents who believe lizard people run the world. <laughs> but what about crab people? Because that's legit. Oh, that might be seven or eight. I don't know. I guess we have to ask <laughs> PPP if they can talk about crab people. But if you want to meet those people again who do believe that Paul McCartney died, Go to the comments section of the Ruby article. There's also, I think it's a website on Tripod. I can't remember. I love a good Tripod website from back in the day. It's linked definitely in the article. It goes through everything about fall and about Paul is dead. Um, but yeah, like literally people will die on this hill. So it's worth, it's worth a scroll through the comments section there if you want to see the people who actually believe it. Shout out to them. Thanks for commenting, guys. It's still fun to speculate, real or not. Probably not. That's unfortunately my view. I hate to burst anybody's bubble, but yeah, that's how I feel about it. But it's still fun to think about, especially around Halloween. I would concur, Erica. I do not think Paul is dead, but I do I do enjoy the theories because it's pretty fun. I love to go on a, I love a good scavenger hunt. So this is, uh, this is just a beetle scavenger hunt is really what it is. Yeah. And if anything else, it shows how creative our fandom is to come up with so many clues. Exactly. And to perpetuate this for like 40 years, 50 years. Amazing. Love it. So that brings us to the end part of our episode, which is always our favorite Beatles-related thing of the week. I guess I'll go first. Okay. Uh, since mine is pretty weird because it's Ringo-related, and we all know how I feel about Ringo. Yeah, I thought you hated Ringo, but you talk a lot about him. Uh, no, I still don't like Ringo, but um, <laughs> I did enjoy. Um, I s recently saw for the very first time his TV special from 1978, and I can't believe I've never seen it before. And if anybody out there is screaming, oh my God, I can't believe you've never seen it. Yeah, me either. But you know, I, the thing I liked about it the most, I thought it was very funny in a lot of ways, but I like that there's still things in the fandom that I haven't discovered yet. I've been a Beatles fan for like almost 20 years and it's like, I'm still discovering cool stuff, mostly thanks to the internet and YouTube. Totally. Um, but yeah, so so this TV special, uh, it centers around Ringo and his like lost half-brother who's named Ogner Ratz. Think about it. It's Ringo Star backwards. Oh my God. Um, yep. And Ogner lives in LA, of course, and he trades places with Ringo because it's like a Prince of the Popper situation. So, you know, Ringo's like, I don't want to play anymore. My life sucks. I'm famous. And Ogner's like, I'm a loser. I'm a nerd. I can't get the girls. Like, you know, all that kind of thing. So they swap places. Um <laughs> And, you know, hijinks ensue. And it's got a bunch of cameos from people like John Ritter, who plays, I think, uh, Ringo's manager, and Carrie Fisher, who plays Ochner's love interest, and Vincent Price, who is amazing and way, way above this. <laughs> but the best... But the best thing in this is George Harrison is the narrator and is so dryly funny through the whole thing. It's, I mean, it's classic George and his like saltiness and it's just perfect. And his perm is insane. <laughs> um, 
it's like peak perm George. That's worth it just on its own. But, you know, me living in L.A., I really love the shots of L.A. in 1978. So that's cool. Um, but, yeah, I definitely like it. We'll we'll post it on our Facebook and, and our Twitter and everything. If you haven't seen it, it's worth a watch. It's not that long. And there's some cool, like, musical numbers, a creepy, you know, rendition, of course, of your 16 that Ringo sings to Carrie Fisher, which is really totally creepy. Carrie Fisher is only, like, 18 or 19 at the time, I think. Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, it's it's worth it. We'll we'll share it. So go watch it on YouTube. That sounds cool. I have not seen that. Yeah, take a take a watch. I will get drunk first. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like definitely that would help. Yeah, I wasn't, but I still it was still okay. Well, you know, you love Ringo, so I can see why you would like that. That's a conspiracy theorist theory <laughs> that I'm not comfortable with. <laughs> I can't seem to get this tinfoil hat off my head. Sorry. Mm, okay. Well. Moving on, what is your favorite Beatles thing of the week? My favorite thing is inspired because last night I went to see the new movie out about Freddie Mercury called Bohemian Rhapsody. I saw it last night too. You did? We're probably there at the same time. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god. What'd you think? I. Okay, I, well, I have a lot of thoughts. I'll condense it. I thought it was enjoyable. I love the music was great. I thought Remy Malik was amazing. Right. But I thought the story. I I tweeted last night because I was just so taken by this thought that band members should never be executive producers on their own biopics because yeah. Roger Taylor and Brian May were the executive producers, and it's just it's really sanitized. It's super duper sanitized. Which I think a lot of the reviews kind of pointed out to, but mm-hmm. I thought it was good. I the end bit, the montage of Live Aid is amazing. Yes, and as you said, the lead actor who played Freddie Mercury is so good, and they did this digital so thing good. where they mixed Freddie Mercury's actual recordings with this Canadian Christian rock singer who sounds really like Freddie Mercury, and they blended these things to make the voice that came out of that man. Wow, I didn't know that, but that, I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, there are definitely some problems with it, especially in the depictions of his sexuality, which was very complex, and they got some of the timeline wrong, like, he was actually not diagnosed with AIDS before the Live Aid concert, it was like two or three years later, so... Playing with AIDS to heighten the drama kind of makes me feel yucky. Yeah, there's a lot of weird devices in the movie. So if you go see it, take it with a grain of salt. But it's it's worth a watch. It's worth it for the lead actor's performance. And just because Queen is awesome and there's so many hit songs in it. Hell yeah. Yeah. So back to the Beatles. My Beatles-related thing was inspired by this because the last part of the movie is about the 1985 Live Aid concert that Queen got... Well, they were never actually broken up. So, but they they performed yeah. that. <laughs> That's another falsehood the movie will tell you. But they actually never broke up. They were like on tour, like what, like two months before Live Aid. Yeah. So that's something. Yeah. All different. All wrong. But I was thinking about it because they mentioned Paul McCartney when they did a cut to the Pledge Drive people. They were sitting there with a really good Elton John guy. So I was hoping for the whole end of the movie that they would show part of Paul's performance. They didn't, but I have been watching Paul's performance almost constantly since I saw the movie last night because what happened was Paul's mic didn't work for the first minute of his performance. And every every group got 20 minutes to perform, but Paul McCartney only took five. He only sang Let It Be. So for the first minute of his performance, all you could hear was the piano. In the video, they actually cut to the commentator saying, you know, well, it looks like we have a bit of a problem, but we will get it sorted right away. But the moment when Paul comes back in, 
the cheer that comes from this giant group of people is just so powerful. It's almost better that that mm. happens. It really makes his performance powerful and poignant. Live Aid is something I think, at least in my mind, like the 80s were so weird. And I feel like that Live Aid was like the height of the worst fashion that ever graced the world. And so there's a lot of things to make fun of about the 80s. But if you really listen to the performances, there were some kick ass fucking performances in that Live Aid thing. And Paul's was one of them. So yeah. go back, look at the look at the video, the original video, because Paul actually re-recorded part of it, the first minute of it for like a, a more commercially available video so that the sound wasn't out. But I like it much better with the sound out. I have to watch that. I mean, Live Aid, obviously, one of the great events of rock and roll history. They tried to recreate it, what, in, I think about 10 years ago with Live Aid, which yeah. was just a fucking waste, in my opinion. But Live Aid was epic. This was the shit. I'm excited to watch Paul yeah. do his thing. And his dress was actually quite nice and conservative for 1985, so good on him i kind of miss paul the way he dressed in like the 80s and the early 90s like he used to wear those wacky vests oh my god those like zebra vests yeah <laughs> i miss that and like his cosby sweaters which i know we can't say anymore but there's really no other term maybe we can call them mccartney sweaters because he wore them a lot oh my god yeah okay they're mccartney sweaters now yeah i i miss that and I his mullet that. was so long his like gray brown mullet yeah oh. <laughs> now i'm just thinking about the picture of paul with the puppies you know you know what i'm talking about. i know exactly what you're talking about i think everybody listening knows exactly what i'm talking about because all you say is the paul picture of the puppies and everybody's like uh. oh they're so cute well on that note <laughs> on the paul with the puppies note uh thanks of course for listening to because the beatles and as always subscribe on itunes apple podcast wherever you get your podcast where we're listening right now on spotify etc give us a rating review so other beetle maniacs can find us and follow us on facebook instagram and twitter we'll be posting photos and links and more from this episode and beyond and weird stuff that we find and don't forget if you have any questions that you want us to address at our live podcast at the white album symposium that is happening next saturday at nine the topic is women of john lennon's white album compositions so please Please send us your contributions. We would love to have you be part of that. Yeah, you can send them to bcthebeatles at gmail.com. Tweet us, Instagram, Facebook. We're BC the Beatles, obviously because the Beatles, but spelled BC the Beatles everywhere. We are available, as we say, 24-8. So hit us up. And we'll see you next time here on Because the Beatles. Bye. Bye-bye.